<sighs> I dreamt of the dragon. I have awoken him. Can't you see all around you the dragon's breath? We have drawn him out. The Duke is off to pursue your men. There he goes. Good. Mount your horse! I will transform you into the semblance of the Duke. Igraine will think her husband has returned. But the cliff, the sea, your lust will hold you up. You will float on the dragon's breath. Junk Food Dinner 660. It's the final round of Patreon picks. First, King Arthur quests for the Holy Grail in Excalibur. Next, adventurers run afoul of punk rock fish mutants in Raiders of Atlantis. Finally, Ellen Barkin goes on an existential vacation in Siesta. Where'd you learn to use a gadget like that? A little technique I picked up in Argentina. It's a long story. I'll tell you about it sometime. We are... Welcome to Junk Food Dinner, episode 660. This is the podcast where each week we scour the internet video stores and cable television, searching for the most outrageous and interesting cult films. In Ohio, I am Kevin Moss, and I'm joined by my California co-host, Parker Bowman, in the 559. And, all right. And Sean. Sorry. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to turn my ringer off and accidentally turned it, turned my phone on instead. I'm, I'm, I'm the world's worst grandfather. Classic mistake. Uh, in Ohio, I am Kevin Moss, and I'm joined by my California co-host, Parker Bowman in the 559, and Sean Byron in L.A. This week, we do our final Patreon Picks Week as a trio with three crazy-ass flicks, including Excalibur from 1981, picked by Mr. Brian, Raiders of Atlantis from 1983, picked by Justin D., and Siesta from 1987, picked by Kevin E. But first, gentlemen, how you doing this week? I'm doing great. I'm... Um... It's a bittersweet week, and you know this. The like you said, it's the last of the Patreon picked movies. I think we got some some bittersweet movies here in general. Um, yeah, it's it's an emotional time, you know. <laughs> yeah, this is our second to last week of regular weekly programming. Um, so after next week, which is going to be exciting, next week is our big thirteenth anniversary extravaganza. We're going to be doing. Uh, three classic flicks. We're going to be running down our favorite movies of the past year on Junk for Dinner, as well as our least favorite movies, which is always a lot of fun. Uh, so, yeah, we've got two, basically, including this two episodes left, and then on to the new format. And, Parker, you want to talk a little bit about what that's going to look like? Uh, yeah. Well, you, Kevin Moss, you're going to be on one show a month. Yep. So one show a month is going to be business as usual, the J- JFD classic, the way you like it the way you remember it the way that you will ultimately prefer it let's be clear <laughs> uh and then yeah the other weeks it's going to be me and sean uh and we're going to be instead of talking about three movies we're going to be talking about one thing 
Um, sometimes it'll be movies, I guess. Sometimes it'll be TV shows. Sometimes it'll be like serial, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> We're still kind of working, working out what the rules are. Could, could be um, one of those, um, you know, 1970s variety show specials that you love so much. I think more often. Yeah, more could often be a than 1970s not. porno. Sure. <laughs> yeah, more often than not, it, it'll be those two things for sure. That, that seems to be the kind <laughs> of stuff that we like. Um, and so, yeah, so it'll be that and then like wacky segments and stuff, I believe. And I don't know, we're still like kind of ironing out the details. But the main gist of it is that rather than three movies and three dudes, two movies or two dudes, one movie, kind of. Right. Go. Would you say that that's fair, Sean? Well, yeah. And I mean, credit where credit's due. We were inspired by two girls, one cup. And we thought, you know, look, we're not <laughs> girls. I don't have a cup laying around, but we've got some movies. So. Yeah, but I think it's going to be fun. Uh, a little bit easier for us as well. You know, obviously, um, you know, Kevin talked about this podcast is a lot of work. It is a lot of work, even for Bowman and I. So it'll be nice to only have to watch one movie a week and and dive into that with you. And, and maybe we'll uh, we'll go deep on some of these. Yeah, yeah I, I think that that's that will be like, I think the most intriguing part for me is being able to like kind of. You know, like whenever I'm t- like, we're doing three movies and there's three of us talking about three movies. Like, I feel like I got to sometimes rush through and maybe, you know, like after we're done recording, I'm like, oh, I had like 10 more things I wanted to say. But I feel like this way we can maybe talk more, more in depth and with more detail about why we love Neil Breen, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so if you are one of those <laughs> listeners out there that is currently using junk food dinner to fall asleep to... I got good news for you. It's going to be even slower and, and more laborious in the future. So <laughs> you'll be snoozing while we talk about Breen for an hour plus. Mm-hmm. That's what Corey likes to do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the good news is you're still going to be getting a weekly dose of junk food dinner in one form of another. And then, like I said, once a month, if you like the show the way it is, uh, you'll get a dose of that as well. Um, but I think you'll, uh, I think fans of the show are going to like it. And I think it's going to, uh, you know, give us some opportunities to do some more fun stuff. So look forward to it and give us a little bit of a break, which we sorely need. So again, we appreciate you sticking with us through the changes, but uh, so if you are a Patreon donor, you might be saying, well, what does this mean for us? Parker, you want to explain what's uh, what's happening with the Patreon? Yeah. Um, go to the Patreon, patreon.com slash junk food dinner. Uh, there's new tiers. There's new details. Obviously we're not going to be doing the Dom DeLuise movies anymore. Um, because it would be probably horrible to only do one movie or one one show a month with uh you know the old format and to to do Dom DeLuise movies instead of uh the Neil Breen movies that we're going to be picking um so so yeah no more Dom DeLuise movies um so we're I guess probably going to delete that tier at some point but a few people have said that they just want it to be around so that they can continue to donate which like those people are the most heroic people on earth, but I, I probably would not expect anybody to do that. So I would imagine everybody should go to the $5 tier, um, which means you get the bonus episodes. We're going to keep doing bonus stuff. It's probably not going to be like a big chunk of a bonus episode the way we do it now. It'll probably just be like random stuff thrown out throughout the month. Um, but we are still going to be putting stuff on Patreon. So that'll probably be like the, the best bet. Um, and then also you can like, uh, just, you know, uh, there are other like lower tiers the way that they've always been, which kind of serve as like a tip jar uh, slash Kevin's retirement fund. 
Uh, now you can <laughs> donate on Patreon and get Kevin that trip to the Florida Keys that he's always wanted to go on. So that's very important yeah. as well. It's a big shuffleboard tournament I want to get in on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's some changes over there. So if you're a Patreon, and more importantly, if you're a Dom DeLuise, go there and take a look because I would feel really bad if uh, if someone just forgot that they were a Dom DeLuise and were expecting us to pick their movie <laughs> at some point. <laughs> Um, that's like the Netflix business model where you sign up and just forget about it. So I don't want to, I would feel bad about that. So go take a look, everybody. And, and if you do, I mean, this is fair warning right now. Don't come to us in a year and say, look, I've been Dom DeLuising for a year, pick Cherry Falls. Cause we won't, we never will, <laughs> but we should, we should watch that movie. I'm pretty glad you picked that movie. Someday. Well, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to sign up to be a Dom DeLuise $10 Patreon. That way you have to do it. I'm going to put it on my list. Well, as we just explained, that's not how it works anymore. So I'm, I regret to oh inform you, you're a little bit late on that one. I need to make a time machine and go back two years ago <laughs> and put it on the list. It's the only way it will work. But yeah, so uh, exciting stuff coming up. So keep your eyes on JFD and the Patreon uh, to, to you know, or just continue doing what you're doing. Download it every week. It'll be the same, basically. Uh, so yeah. Uh, other than that, you guys get anything fun this week? Sean, I know you had some adventures in baseball land. Oh, yeah. Kevin Moss, I had a 25-hour day of baseball. Holy uh, shit. I'll, I'll tell you about briefly. Hopefully, it won't take 25 hours to to recant. But, um, that's wait, too much. Twi- it's too much baseball. Two, 25 it, hours, that's way too much. Well, 25, okay, well 25, hours, 25 hours of baseball. So you watched five innings of baseball? <laughs> Very good. Very fun. Um <laughs> No, so, so basically, you know, you know, it's spring training. As you guys are well aware, the Cactus League is in full session. I don't need to tell you guys that. Everybody in America knows. Everybody's talking about the Cactus League results, you know, which is, you know, the Dodgers and other teams do their spring training in Arizona, uh, like right outside of Phoenix. And I've always wanted to go. I've never been to one of those. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a drive. It's like five and a half, six hours, something like that. Um, but this year, you know, the wife and I were like, let's go to, you know, the cactus league, let's check it out. And we were going to be going a couple weeks ago, but that fucking blizzard rolled through town and, and messed up our plans. And so we, we had to reschedule it. And so we rescheduled it for this past Saturday and it was like a one o'clock game. And so our plan was, well, let's wake up at four in the morning. We can hit the road by five in the morning. We'll be there at like 11. We can have a nice meal get to the stadium at noon, you know, one o'clock game. This will work out great. When we were driving there, we realized, well, the World Baseball Classic is happening in Phoenix at the same time. We could potentially see Great Britain versus Team USA tonight at Chase Field, you know, at eight o'clock. So we, you know, during the drive, maybe it's because, you know, we were up at like, you know, 4.35 in the morning uh, making this decision. But we're like, yeah, let's let's commit. Let's buy these tickets. So we, we bought the tickets, committed ourselves to a full day out there. But um, yeah, it, it was, you know, like a six hour drive there, watched a spring training game, had a little bit of Waffle House between the games, you know, uh, headed over to Chase Field. And, you know, the one thing that they, they didn't tell me when they sold me the ticket to the World Baseball Classic was that the uh, stadium was doing double duty that day that there was a prior game between Colombia and Mexico, which would mean by the time that we entered the stadium and that game ran late, it was an extra innings. So we got in a, a little bit late, but by the time that we entered the stadium, 
every surface imaginable was covered in beer and peanuts, peanut shells and stuff, which through like the course of the game, I feel like the beer was like decomposing the peanuts and creating this horrendous odor. I don't know if you guys have ever watched baseball in a dome before with no airflow and a, you know, sold out crowd. I don't even know if Chase Field, you know, where the Diamondbacks played has ever been sold out before, but it was like, there was an oppressive stench of beer and peanuts, but fun game. Uh, after that, you know, we, we hit the road, came back, six-hour drive back. And, yeah, it was 25 hours by the time we got back. Uh, no sleep, all baseball and driving. Okay, so you're adding driving into this 20, 25 hours, so that's... Yeah, well, but it's it's a single day in that we didn't sleep. We just yeah. baseballed. And I, I feel like at my advanced age, at my grandpa age, the fact I was able to pull this off, I'm, I'm patting myself on the back over here. Well, I just got to say, God bless your wife for putting up with this buffoonery. <laughs> she, <laughs> dude, she's a maniac. She like it was mostly her idea, to be honest with you. I don't know what's wrong with her, but uh, putting up with me in the car is, is something that yeah, you should commend her on. <laughs> These Waffle House farts that were going on for six <laughs> hours. What's your what's your go to uh, Waffle House order? Well, this time was, it's pretty much the, the standard, which is two waffles, and then I get the hash browns. Um, what is it? It's covered and chunked, which is cheese and, and ham. And then okay. I got a side of, side of bacon. Wife got a side of sausage, had a little bite of that. Very nice. I love a Waffle House, though. We don't have them here in Los Angeles, so I, I got to go all the way to Phoenix for them. Yeah, so Waffle House. Ha- I'll go okay, ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, you got two waffles and some sides, and all your wife got was... Just like a, a couple oh, of no, sausage no, no. patties? She, she got a waffle and everything, you know. Oh, okay, but I, okay, yeah, okay. I wasn't stealing from her waffle. I had two of my own. <laughs> okay, I thought that maybe you were just like making her watch you eat waffle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that kind of a guy. I would be. I love Waffle House. I miss it. Yeah. Yeah, Waffle House is great. I mean, it's got a CD reputation because, I mean, it's open 24 hours. And obviously, there's the internet is littered with videos of fights and crazy shit going down at 3 a.m. And yeah. I have seen some shit go down at Waffle House, uh, yeah. especially in my college years. But for all that their their bad reputation, they are amazingly consistent. It's always good, always fast. And uh, yeah, I mean, you can't really fuck with it. Yeah, and cheap too, you know? Like, oh, I mean, yeah. that's, that's tough to find these days. Like, I feel like a cheap, satisfying meal is, is you know, few and far between. But w- we did kind of walk into... You know, not the craziest Waffle House story, like on the scale of like crazy things happening at Waffle House. This is like a one out of 10. But of course, there was something. You can't have a Waffle House uh, trip without incident, which well, was... What, what time are we talking about in the day? Oh, it must have been about four o'clock, something like that. Five o'clock, maybe. No, p.m. Okay. Afternoon. Yeah. So before our night game. And it was pretty dead in there. You know, we walked in. There was one guy sitting down at a table. It's the kind of Waffle House has like like three little booth tables and then the big counter, you know. So one guy at the table and then this family of like a husband and wife, two young kids, maybe five, six years old, sitting down in like the kind of like waiting for a seat area. And so we come in and they're clearly waiting and we're like, oh, you guys are waiting. I guess we'll be behind you. And then they're like, yeah, we're waiting. You know, the staff, uh, you know, hasn't spoken to us yet and then the staff came out they looked at us they're like oh you want to sit at the counter we're like yeah but these guys are ahead of us so seat them first he didn't respond to that he just said do you guys want to sit at the counter we're like okay and so we sat at the counter and then he just completely ignored this family 
uh, I don't know why. Like, and it was, <laughs> there was like clearly some tension. I don't know if something happened before we came in, there was some kind of argument or something, but we walked into some kind of scenario where homeboy would not seat this family. And eventually they left. Maybe they were persona non grata. Maybe the last time we were there, they were assholes. Could be, could be anything. I mean, I, I will say, uh, white server, not non-white customer base. So oh, well, that's not, yeah, I, well. I don't know, but Either way, that was kind of awkward, but the food was great. All right. Well, come for the racism, stay for the uh, <laughs> waffles. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, boy. Well, <laughs> it sounds like you had uh, a fun trip, nevertheless, full of baseball, waffles, and uh, new experiences. Um, so that's cool. I'm glad you yeah. got to enjoy it. Did you, did you see, uh, so did you see a winner? Well, the, the Dodgers lost their spring training game, which I didn't really care about. I just wanted to see the stadium and you know, half of the Dodgers were either playing on the other squad because they were running two Dodger spring training games simultaneously. They were playing the Cubs and the Giants at the exact same time. So half the guys were playing on one team, half were on the other. And then a few of the guys, you know, like the MVP type guys, Mookie Betts and and stuff like that, um, Freddie Freeman, they're playing for their national teams. So we saw Mookie Betts later that night at the world baseball classic and yeah, team USA beat great Britain, which was great. And to see like a sold out crowd in Arizona, like chanting against great Britain was so much fun. Bowman, you you would have loved it. And in fact, I would say maybe even look these highlights up on YouTube because like people were showing up in costume. There's a lot of guys in like revolutionary war costumes. And then a few of them would be like, you know, British supporters and they would hold up, you know, the, the British flag and 50,000 people in unison would boo as hard as they could. And it was just beautiful to see these, these Brits get their comeuppance. You have described heaven to me. (laughs) That's what I hope the afterlife is like. Yeah, it was, it was pretty rad. Did you have any stadium food? I mean, or were you still full from waffle house? We had a little bit of uh, vanilla soft serve, and I think that was it. There were really long lines for everything. And I, I feel like that's the new trend now at baseball games is like, these lines are too long for me to even get food now. Well, that's why the Waffle House was invented. Exactly. Yeah. Served its purpose. What about nice. you guys? Any, uh, any b-ball? Any, any waffles? Uh, I didn't have any waffles. No, sadly. I, I, uh, we'll talk about it here in a bit, probably in nerd news. But I got out to the movie theater and saw that new Scream movie. Oh, so that's what I did all week. I was just thinking about Scream, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, nothing exciting for me either. It was a relatively boring week, just hanging and slanging here in the old natty. You're you're laying low under those chemical clouds of death. I'm telling you, it's they're they're not chemical clouds. It's the water we got to be worried about. Okay, well, just wait until it evaporates, though. Yeah. You saw Return of the Living Dead. It's going to evaporate and turn into clouds. And then it will rain on you guys, and then the dead will walk the earth. It's true. I was in Louisville, which which is, you know, of course, the location of Return of the Living Dead. Oh, I don't don't know that I I even remembered that. Well, it's where it's set. It's not where it was filmed. It was obviously filmed in California. In fact, I saw that the the building, the classic... uh, uh, building the whatever it's Unita, right? Or yep, Unita Medical where, Supplies. The building where where the tar man is unleashed. Yeah, that that building is up for sale. So 
Oh, is now the time to cash in our Patreon bucks? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Let's cash in our Patreon, buy the Unita building, move it brick by brick to Louisville, Kentucky, where it belongs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Start a Return of the Living Dead uh, haunted attraction. Yeah, and haunted attraction slash museum, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. Let's dream big. Slash medical supply store. I mean, why not make a couple of dollars on the side? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got a line on some halved dogs. <laughs> yeah. And some just skeletons some, with perfect teeth. Just what I some, always wanted. We can also get some pickled dog brains, maybe some pictures of ladies with extra added equipment. <laughs> I, I don't know why I'm conflating these two different movies. <laughs> Uh, but that's that's my ideal business is to combine Return of the Living Dead with Freaked in some way. I guess. <laughs> I think it would work. Yeah. Well, very nice. Well, you want to see what kind of shenanigans the fools out there in junk food dinnerland are getting into in this week's segment of junk mail? Of course. Yeah. Well, hit me with a voicemail, Mister B. Okay. Please welcome me a sweet man. You're so sweet. You're so sweet. If Jesus of Nazareth really is the Son of God, wouldn't that make him the ultimate Nepo baby? Oh. <laughs> is it? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> well, thank you, Mia, for calling in and posing that intriguing question. I, I know that Mia keeps up on all the hottest slang, and I, I guess, yeah, nep- Nepo baby is a, you know, that's a hot buzzword right now. You know any Nepo babies? I gotta get me one. I feel like yeah. my legacy is just gonna go into the grave after this. You know what I mean? That's true. Yeah, yeah we're all childless. We need to get some kids that are gonna fill in for us when we retire. <laughs> Honestly, if we had you know procreated at the beginning of this podcast, Kevin, they would almost be old enough to be podcasting by now. So it's true. When yeah, Bowman would... finishes that time machine, let's go back and have sex together. Together. <laughs> well, that's how it works, right? You want to create the ultimate podcaster. Yeah. Combine you my don't DNA to... and, and yours. Yeah, you can't dilute the DNA with somebody who doesn't do a podcast. I mean, if you want to put in Mike Dick or something, that's fine. Instead of me, I understand. <laughs> that's how natural selection works, Kevin. I didn't know. I failed that course. Anyways, no, I, I don't actually know any Nepo babies. Although I probably do, honestly. Living in Los Angeles, I'm sure half my friends are, and I just don't realize it. Yeah. I thought it meant Napoleon babies, and I thought it was going to be a hot new show on ABC, like Muppet Babies. <laughs> just a bunch of babies trying to conquer Russia during the winter. Yeah. <laughs> We've got 30 babies. Which one of them will be able to conquer the USSR? I mean, it, it sounds ridiculous, but if you saw a little baby in one of those huge Napoleon hats, you would know right away this show's got legs. Baby legs. Baby legs? <laughs> Pick up the phone. Yeah, baby legs. We haven't heard from you in a while. Pick up the phone and give us a call like Mia did. At, uh, I forgot the number. What's the number? 347-746-JUNK. No, that's not it. Try again. Is that, is that not it? Keep going. Junk five eight six five two eight whoa, whoa, seven whoa. six. What's the area four, code? Four two nine eight seven six two 
Nine. I think it's uh, 1-800-EMPIRE. Oh, my yeah. man Baby Legs can't work the phone. 347-746-JUNK. <laughs> <laughs> Park your head at right. I'm just pulling chains. But yes, give us a call. Leave us a voicemail. Get your voice heard on the show. And let us know what you think about Nepo Babies, Neko Wafers, or anything else for that matter. Waffle House. Oh, I bet I, I bet you fools out there got some awesome Waffle House stories. Let's oh, hear yeah. about people puking, fighting, whatever in Waffle House. We want to hear about it. Or yeah. tell us what your favorite or least favorite JFD movie was for the past year. Oh, yeah, that's true. Next week's going to be our top five, bottom five favorite movies of the past year on JFD. So let us know what movies you liked or what movies maybe you checked out on our recommendation and said, this sucks. These guys are idiots. We want to know about that, too. Mm-hmm. Also, let us know what your top five, bottom five uh, Kevin moments are. He's going into semi-retirement last week. We got to wish him off by recounting our favorite uh, Kevin memories. All right, I'll take that. Uh, you too. I yeah. need I need you to make a list too, Kevin, of your top five, bottom five Kevin memories. Okay. Let's um, see what? No. <laughs> <laughs> I agreed, but my uh, AI self says no. So <laughs> I got to do what the robot says. I'm sorry. Yeah. They're in control now. Yeah, understandable. Uh, but yeah, so that being said, let's get into a little bit of nerd news. From the global resources of Junk Food Dinner Worldwide, it's time for Nerd News. Well, boys, Sunday was Hollywood's big night. Uh, it was the 95th annual Academy Awards, and uh, it was a big night for the movie that I loved last year. That you guys hated everything, everywhere, all at once. It won Best Picture. Uh, it also saw first-time Oscars go to Michelle Yeoh and uh, Ki Huey Kwan, and it won uh, Jamie Lee Curtis for Best Supporting Actress. Uh, it also won for Best Director for The Daniels. It won for best screenplay, best editing. Uh, it, it cleaned up, basically. Uh, Brendan Fraser won for The Whale for best acting, uh, which I also thought he should win. Uh, but overall, it was uh, basically a night for everything, everywhere, all at once, uh, which I was excited to see. I mean, it was up against, you know, some stuff that I thought had had some had a chance. I mean, All Quiet on the Western Front, you know, the Academy never saw World War movie that it didn't love uh so i I expected that to win and it it won some things but uh not a lot um the elvis movie i thought or the fablemans i mean they love steven spielberg over there so i thought they might give it to him uh or tar which i thought was kind of maybe an underdog it might take him some some trophies but didn't um or the banshees of inner sheeran was also uh, widely talked about I couldn't believe Avatar, the fucking way of water, was nominated for Best Picture and the whale wasn't. I thought that was fucking a bit ridiculous. I was hoping Avatar wasn't going to win anything. Unfortunately, it did win Best Visual Effects, which, I mean, there wasn't a ton of great movies in that category, but uh, I would have liked to have seen it gone to Wakanda Forever or something other than fucking Avatar. I I still think that looks like shit. I don't know what people are talking about. Uh, But yeah, I don't know. Did you guys watch any of the Oscars or did you see the, the winners? Did you have any thoughts on it? I watched it, and um, I will say, you know, as a longtime defender of the Oscars, you know, 
you know, in terms of it being something to watch on, on a lazy afternoon, like it's, I don't subscribe to the idea that these awards mean very much no, or that, you know, these people who select them have good taste in any way, but it's kind of fun. Once a year, you see every famous person in Hollywood get under a, a single roof together and you kind of gawk at them in a fishbowl kind of a thing. Um, I'll say this year, man, was maybe the most boring Oscars I have ever seen. And that could be by design, you know, maybe based on, you know, last year's slap and all that. They wanted to make things very boring or or something. But I had a hard time even making it through this year. I mean, I I did watch from start to finish, but who boy, it, it was just like a series. I mean, obviously, like the awards part is what it is. That doesn't change. But in between that, like rather than having any comedic bits whatsoever, everything in between was just a commercial either for a movie or for a movie studio. Like they would do these extended trailers for all 10 Best Picture nominees that take like three minutes a pop. And then they would do these like four minute promo videos for like, well, here's the history of Disney Studios and all the movies that they've made that you love. And here's the history of Warner Bros. And it's like, I don't need all these fucking commercials, dude. Show me like Jimmy Kimmel in the audience, you know, making jokes with awkward celebrities who don't want to be bothered, you know? Yeah, I thought it was lame that they did just like a full commercial for that new Little Mermaid movie that Disney's putting out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I will say a couple things that did entertain me during the Oscars. One, I thought the RRR uh, dance musical number, by far the best musical number of the night. The rest were total snooze fest, I agree. But that one... I thought was really good and I liked it in the movie. All right. But man, seeing it live and performed with like, you know, on stage with dancers doing it in real time, not on film, very fucking impressive. And, uh, I'm glad that that one best song as it totally yeah. deserved to. Well, and that's I- probably the, the best acceptance speech as well. was that Indian guy getting up there and, and singing a little tune. I thought that was really charming. Yeah. Um, and I did like, you know, I, it, it was exciting to see, uh, Ki Huey Kwan win because again, I, you know, I think like everybody, I've fallen in love with seeing that guy win because he's so genuinely excited and happy and appreciative, um, and it's just infectious to see you know his excitement. And Brendan Fraser again, I was rooting for him and another guy who seems genuinely humbled and excited to be there. And again, just somebody that the seems like the whole world's rooting for. And you know, love Michelle Yeoh um, again. Glad to see her get some acceptance. And Jamie Lee Curtis, who, you know, thanked her genre fans for supporting her all those years. So it was cool to see genre fans get a shout out. She didn't shout out John Carpenter, though. Who I, I feel like, couldn't you give old Johnny a, a shout out from the stage? Sure. But, but yeah, no. I, you know, it, it was what it was. Like you said, it's the Oscars. It's going to be boring. And like you said, it doesn't really mean much. But uh, it was one of the few times that I watched the Oscars and pretty much who I wanted to win won most of the time. I think it's shocking. I, I mean, even if you do like that movie, I think even you have to admit, Kevin, very surprising that it would win over yeah. things like, I mean, I thought Banshees of Inishir and when I watched it, I'm, I'm like, well, this is going to win best picture because it's, it's a good movie or, or maybe even a great movie. And it's exactly the kind of movie that the Oscars would award and and i feel like now i don't even know what that is like i don't think that there is a standard definition anymore of of what is an oscar movie yeah i think that's a good thing probably is yeah well i 
I mean, you know, let's not go crazy yet. I'm sure next year they're going to give all the awards to another dickhead who made a movie about how important it is to make movies. Like that's will always be what an Oscar movie is. Just, oh, this, this guy made a movie about a tortured artist. Give him all the awards. Like that's, that's all they care about is kind of sniffing their own farts by awarding people who make movies about getting awarded. True. But, but I mean, hopefully this movie changes that. I mean, we'll, I guess we'll see. Um, it seems like they've been creeping towards possibly doing different things. Um, you know, they were, you know, they were given nominations to black Panther and everything like that. So, and avatar. So who knows? We'll see. I don't it, know. It does seem like we are now solidly in the era of a 24 running Hollywood, you know, between everything. And I think the whale is also a 24, right. And a lot of these award winners are, <laughs> are a 24s who are getting yeah. it done on, you know, relatively lower budgets. Yeah, I think they've kind of replaced Miramax as the, you know, home for prestige kind of indie films with a, you know, a, a slight edgy bent to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And, you-, you know, they do the a lot of the prestige like dramas and stuff, but also, I mean, they're just doing like cool, um, like horror movies too. Just like regular ass horror movies. Which yeah. is fun. Well, like not so much regular ass, I guess, but like they're also kind of arty. But, um, yeah, like I mean, yeah, they're they're not like just you know, they're not just doing a hundred movies about tortured artists. They're also throwing in movies about crazy cults and ghosts. So I appreciate that. Absolutely, uh, it was also fun to see Guillermo del Toro win again for Pinocchio for best animated feature, uh, which I was pulling for. And uh, yeah, again, they shouted out stop motion, which I like to see. Um, and speaking of stop motion, I'm going to segue into another real quick piece of nerd news uh, and just uh, alert people to a Kickstarter, which I normally wouldn't do. But this is a project that I am uh, firmly excited about, and that is the Kickstarter for a stop motion animated movie called Shrine of Abominations. And this is a stop motion psychedelic fantasy film uh, that is mostly complete. Uh, but needs some funding to take it across the finish line. Um, And what's exciting about this is this is from the mind of artist Skinner. And I don't know if you know the Skinner guy, but he's a visual artist. He does a lot of cool psychedelic kind of fantasy horror style art. His his stuff kind of looks like Pusshead a little bit, or like it, it seems like it would definitely fit on any 1980s skateboard, you know? Absolutely. He, and it's all a lot of fantasy based stuff, a lot of, you know, barbarians and monsters and, uh, and it's all done in like neon bright colors and a Jack Kirby kind of style. Uh, but yeah, he's teamed up with stop motion effects dude, Ross Kennedy, uh, to create uh, a stop motion psychedelic fantasy hellscape, uh, much, uh, kind of similar to, uh, last year's Mad God, and apparently Phil Tippett has done some assistant directing on this project as well. Um, but yeah, so they currently have a Kickstarter up. Uh, you can check it out. Uh, but if you just want to check out a, a sample of what the stop motion animation is going to look like, they do have a trailer up on YouTube. Just search Shrine of Abominations, and it looks really cool. I mean, it looks you know kind of grimy and gross and weird, but uh, that's the kind of stuff I like. And if you go to the Kickstarter, there's a lot of cool skinner designed 
bonuses you can pick up, including, you know, posters, t-shirts, action figures, the whole works. But anyway, I'm not trying to shill for him too much, but again, it's a project that I'm excited about because I just like this guy's artwork and I love stop motion animation. So I think this looks cool. But did you guys get a chance to watch that uh, little, little clip that I sent via YouTube? And if so, what'd you think? I did not know, but I will because you're making it sound up my alley. Yeah. Uh, likewise, I'm, you know, I'm, I regret that I didn't watch it before the show, but I, I love this Skinner guy's art. You know, he's done a lot of cool stuff in the past. He, he's done like record covers and stuff as well. And totally, you probably recognize his art if, if you know the name doesn't sound familiar. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm hyped on this as well. I will check it out. Nice. Yeah. This, yeah. I actually just discovered, uh, this artist like this week on Facebook somehow. So I assume it was probably tied to the Kickstarter that I, I found him, but, uh, but yeah, this art is super awesome. So now I'm even more intrigued. Very nice. Yeah. It looks like a fun movie to, uh, smoke some heavy doobies and, uh, watch. So hopefully it gets, uh, funding and, uh, hopefully we'll be able to watch it soon. Yeah. Speaking of funding, scream six has set a box office record. Uh, for the franchise, not a real box office record, I guess. Uh, it's <laughs> the biggest of the franchise, uh, with forty-four point five million dollar domestic opening. Uh, it came out. Uh, the last one made thirty million. Scream Four made eighteen million. Uh, Scream Two and Three both made like thirty-four million. So I guess uh, with inflation, Two and Three are probably still the winners. Um, Wait, what did One make? The first one. one? Uh, in its opening weekend, part one made six million. Really? Yeah, I think yeah that movie like it's kind of a, a word of mouth thing with that movie, yeah. probably. Yeah, definitely. I feel like it was in movie theaters for like months and months and months. Like I, I feel like I saw it like six months after it first came out, and I got to see it in theaters. Like I feel like it was in theaters for like ever, and that's how it made all its money. So you're saying it was Rather. a grower, not a shower? Absolutely. <laughs> But uh, two and three were big hits right out of the gate. And this one. Um, so uh, I'm one of the people who gave money to this movie. Um, it's, that, it's that Jenny Jenny Ortega, man. America loves great. her. It's true. Yeah, she's wonderful. I I feel like they didn't realize that early enough into making this movie because she's like sort of like the fourth most important character or something. But maybe when they get around to Scream 7, she'll be the star because she's obviously like the best part. Um, she's super fun to watch. So, well, spoiler alert. So you're saying she doesn't die. I mean, you know, they always come back if they do die. She was in that last one too, right? Yeah. She was in the last one. So, um, yeah. So, um, everybody comes, you know, Courtney Cox is in this one, you know, they're always coming back, but, um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I thought this one was better than the last one. And probably better than the one before that, but I didn't really care for it too much. There's a lot of interesting ideas that I kind of go nowhere, but are still interesting nonetheless. So I, I don't know. I thought it was worth watching, but I didn't really love it. Um, do you guys have any interest in in this one, or did you see it? I did not see it. I do not have any interest in it. I saw that. La- I saw part of that last one on cable, and it was so stupid. I had to turn it off. It was just. I thought it was awful. <laughs> yeah, uh, I hated that one. Yeah, so I had, I really no interest in seeing this just based on that last one. Uh, but it seems people are hyped for it. The one thing I was psyched for was the merchandising or the kind of the promos attached to this. I don't know if you saw this at, at your theater, but apparently they have ghost-faced 
uh, themed popcorn tubs and collectible cups that you can get. And mm-hmm. I just love, I love, uh, I don't know, promotional items like that. I love promotional popcorn tubs, promotional cups, especially when they've got like little plastic figures and they're like molded to look like something. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm an idiot for that kind of stuff. So even if I don't like the movie, I might next time I'm at the theater get a ghost face popcorn tub to eat my popcorn out of. Yeah. They, my theater did not have those, sadly, but I did see that the internet was freaking out about the fact that they exist. Yeah. If they do have those at my local theater, that might be what tempts me to, to go down and see this, but, but probably not. I'll, I'll probably wait till, you know, this is on Peacock or whatever, but, but I do have, you know, mild interest. I'm sure that I will eventually get around to this. I still haven't seen that last one either. So I'll have to see both of them, but I don't know. I mean, as I discovered when I watched that Netflix Texas Chainsaw not too long ago, I'm also susceptible to nostalgia and, you know, a, a mediocre slasher movie with, you know, characters that I remember that, that might resonate with me. Yeah. Even when they're bad, I just love these like high production value, like glossy soap opera slasher movies like Scream, like that. I just got a huge soft spot for those. So yeah, I, even when they're bad, I'm into it. Like Scream or I Know What You Did Last Summer or or Cherry Falls, you know, among your favorite movies. <laughs> Absolutely. Those are my top three right there. Um, but yeah, so uh, I'm glad this movie did well and that we're in sort of a, a new renaissance era of slasher movies. But it's sad that my boys Freddie and Jason aren't here for it, you know? Halloween's yeah. back, Scream's back, young Charles is back doing the best work of his career on that TV show. But no Freddie <laughs> and Jason. Yeah, that is a, a pretty strong opening, though, financially. I mean, that's I would not have predicted that kind of an opening for Scream. Yeah, yeah, a lot of money. Well, speaking of a lot of money, uh, if you're in the mood to send $40 over to Criterion in exchange for a Blu-ray, uh, they might send you their new release of Last Hurrah for Chivalry, the John Woo film from 1979, uh, a film with a very complicated plot summary, so... Let me try and get through this very complicated plot. A son tries to avenge his father and gets two sword fighters to help him. Um, So that's what happens in this movie, uh, which sounds like most kung fu movies I've ever seen, but I have never seen this one. Uh, You know, like most people our age, I I grew up loving the John Woo gun fu movies with Xiao Yun Fa. Uh, But it wasn't until much later that I even knew that the guy started out doing kung fu movies um, a few years ago, I did catch his 1976 Kung Fu movie, Hand of Death, uh, which features a, a young Sammo Hung and Jackie Chan. Uh, and I really enjoyed that one. So I'll, I'll probably enjoy this one as well. Um, at this point, a lot of his early stuff, John Woo, uh, is still impossible to get on home video. So hopefully next uh, Criterion or, or anyone will give me a, a U.S. release of Laughing Times, which is John Woo's 1980 attempt to make a a Charlie Chaplin movie uh, starring a, a Chinese Charlie Chaplin, uh, a movie that I, I desperately want to own. Uh, but maybe I'll have to settle for Last Hurrah for Chivalry. Uh, have you guys seen this? Have you guys seen any of these early John Woo's? Do you like John Woo in general? What do you think? I like John Woo in general. Uh, I have not seen these films you are referring to, so I'm excited that they are getting a uh, Criterion U.S. release. And yeah, I'll check them out. Yeah, I I feel like I mostly like John Woo, um, so I'm intrigued by these. You guys ever catch that Red Cliff movie that he did about a decade ago? That like 
the big historical Chinese war epic. No. That's also really good. I would recommend that. If you like things like Hero, it's kind of in that vein. I do like Hero. Yeah. Check out Red Cliff from John Woo. And then check out Last Hurrah for Chivalry. Very nice. Well, I think on that note, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to get into our first Patreon-picked movie of the evening. That is Excalibur from 1981 by Mr. Brian. So stick around. Thank you, Adam Perna, our great director, Adam McKay, uh, Christian Bale. What a... Oh, you're here. Go ahead. Go ahead. Plan Plan B, Gary Sanchez. The voting Academy members and our fellow nominees from the UK and Sweden. Thank you. Christian Bale, you're, you're fantastic. You're so great to work with and create with and everything. Thank you. Ava Adams, thank you for bringing us up to your level of commitment. Sam, Sam Rockwell and the 150 other SAG members. Great job. Thank Susan, Susan Matheson. Jeff Waxman and uh, Jennifer Madelon. Our DP, Greg Frazier, our script D. Kate. Ed Hall Williams, Jamie Kilman, Amy Moreau, Leslie Walker, Christina Foster, Chris Gallagher. What is wrong? And now, we love hearing from our junk food junkies. Call today at 347-746-5865 or just click the call now button on Facebook. If you or your partner isn't living life to the fullest, there's something you can do. <laughs> We're in this love together. We got to that last forever. It can happen for you. Call today for your free confidential information. I cannot give you the land. Only my love. That's the only thing of yours I don't want. The Quest Knights have failed. They're all dead. You are dead too. I shall come back and take Camelot by force. Light fades at dawn. The moon is gone. And deadly the blood Excalibur, a visually breathtaking version of the King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, including Merlin the Magician, Lancelot, Guinevere, and a sword called Excalibur. <laughs> I stress the fact that Excalibur is visually beautiful because that's the movie's strong point. This movie is a feast for the eyes and a famine for the mind.
people, modern characters walking around wearing costumes, you know, I never got the reality of this film, except as you point out, particularly for me, Merlin, the character of Merlin, he's fascinating, he's electric, charming, I just can't understand why the director, John Borman, who's made some pretty good films, Deliverance in particular, why he didn't make uh, Lancelot, Guinevere, and Arthur more compelling characters, these are, they're just interchangeable, sharply almost. delineated characters, if you go back 14 or 15 years to Camelot, which is a movie I was not enthusiastic about, at least the characters were, were drawn with good brushstrokes. You could see who they were and how they related to each other. Here, as you mentioned, they're like uh, uh, mannequins wearing costumes, walking around in their armor in the river. And instead of romance, you want the rust Yeah, it's a very uh, unimpressive film from that aspect. Only Merlin seems to work. disappointed no votes though on Excalibur. We like the look of the movie much more than its characters and story. Welcome back to Junk Food Dinner and the final, or well, the first Patreon pick on our final Patreon Picks episode uh, is going to be Excalibur, picked by Mr. Brian. This is a film from 1981 that I selected based solely on my love for the Excalibur Hotel in Las Vegas. That was that was the only reason. It's a tribute to our little Vegas trip that we had uh, not too long ago. We, I swear to God, my girlfriend and I joked about that. Like, I wonder if they, if, I, I thought Parker had picked this, so I thought, we said, I, I wonder if Parker had picked this because of our stay at the Excalibur Hotel, but now I know it's you who picked it. It was me. It yeah. was the case. Well, and if you remember, I was the one that picked the Excalibur Hotel as well. So I'm I'm two for two on my my Excalibur picks. Um, but really, I mean, the the reason that I did pick this was because of director John Borman. 
uh, a guy who directed a movie that is one of my all-time favorites, Point Blank, with Lee Marvin. I fucking love that movie. I've always loved that movie. Uh, and recently, I, I saw Deliverance for the first time, uh, another movie that he directed. And I thought that was fantastic. Um, so I figured, you know, I should probably get into more of these John Borman movies. I think this is probably like the third or fourth one listed on his letterbox in terms of like notoriety. So uh, I figured, hey, let's let's watch Excalibur. Um, it is the basic story of King Ulthar featuring Shelby Cobras on loot and his <laughs> Knights of the Round Table. Uh, and if, you know, if you have seen any version of the Arthurian legend, at least some elements of this should be familiar to you. Um, I guess my two primary encounters with the Arthurian legend have been through like the Disney cartoon, uh, the sword and the stone, uh, and also through the menu at round table pizza, which features <laughs> all kinds of, you know, Arthurian pizzas. Uh, this movie is fairly unlike both of those things. Uh, there's no Sherman brothers songs. There's very little pepperoni. Uh, instead we get the classic story of horny guys ruining the peacetime by waging wars over their lady loves. Um, and in the interest of laziness, um, instead of actually going through and writing up what happened in this movie, uh, I'm just going to read the IMDb summary from IMDb user Greg Bowl, who writes, uh, Uther Pendragon, played by Gabriel Byrne, is given the mystical sword Excalibur by the wizard Merlin. At his death, Uther buries the sword into a stone and the next man that can pull it out will be the King of England. Several years later, Uther's bastard son, Arthur, played by Nigel Terry, draws Excalibur and becomes king. Guided by Merlin, Arthur marries Guinevere, played by Sherry Lungi, uh, and gathers the Knights of the Round Table. Uh, of course, Arthur's evil half-sister, Morgana, played by Dame Helen Mirren, sires a son with him who may prove to be his downfall. So thanks for that, IMDb user Greg Bowl. Um, I would add to the list of characters that we should mention up top here is Patrick Stewart is in this, playing the King of Camilliard. And from the moment he appears on screen, you can tell Patrick Stewart is, he's in his element. You know, he's, he's a pig in shit. Uh, clearly loving this, this world, you know, the opportunity to play an Arthurian character. Um, just having the time of his life. But I don't really know how much the guy even gets to do in this movie, to be honest. He's kind of just in it, and then he's out of it. And maybe this is not so much a movie about people doing things uh, as much as it is a movie about you just kind of looking at all of the stuff that they made for this movie and experiencing it mostly through the visuals and, and music. Uh, you can, and you know, you can pretty much go down the line of crew on this movie, and everyone has done outstanding work here. You know. Um, one of the many talented craftsmen on the picture is DP Alex Thompson, uh, who would go on to shoot Legend and Labyrinth. Uh, and Guy just knows how to shoot these green, mossy forests with billowing clouds of fog. It just looks fucking gorgeous. Uh, he also does a really good job shooting that rad-looking cave set towards the end of the movie that kind of looks like uh, Arthur would be meeting the killer Boris Karloff in there. Um, thought that stuff looked great. Um, there's also some cool music in this, like there's some, some Wagner on the score, I believe, but there's also a, uh, nice original orchestral score from Trevor Jones, who would also go on to, uh, score the dark crystal and the labyrinth. So he definitely has fantasy world creds. Um, and I love all the, the costuming in this, um, the costumes here were done by a guy named Bob Ringwood, who also did the costumes for David Lynch's Dune. 
and uh, both Tim Burton Batmans, among many other things. Uh, and the armor from ma- master craftsman Terry English, which, by the way, if you're an English guy creating armor, I would hope that your name would be Terry English, and, and he does not disappoint there. Uh, but it's fucking awesome. I, I love this armor. Well, I, I, I guess mostly. Um, Merlin does have this weird chrome dome that he rocks in this, like this little stainless steel skull cap that kind of makes it, makes it look like he's honestly like he's one of those evil Bill and Ted robots and you just kind of peeled his scalp back. Um, so that's kind of a weird choice, but, but I did think that most of the armor in this was fucking incredible, just real tough looking plate metal armor, you know, armor. So cool that these guys are, are having passionate fuck sessions with their wives while still wearing the armor in this movie, which I thought was kind of, uh, intriguing. Uh, but yeah, this Terry English guy is the real deal. I, I think he's probably like the top ranked guy in the world of armor making for whatever that's worth. And overall, this is just a flashy looking movie, you know, I think maybe one of the more expensive looking movies that we have ever reviewed, to be honest. And I look at the budget here, it's only $11 million, which, you know, is a chunk of change, but doesn't sound so pricey for something that looks like this, you know, especially considering that it did make its money back. It made 35 million uh, in the theaters. So it, you know, it did pretty well. But yeah, there's not a single scene in this movie that doesn't feature seemingly like 600 extras uh, engaged in horsebound swordplay and like full armor. And there's big, you know, like fireworks going off in the background and stuff like this. Um, But at the same time, it's also kind of boring for the entire movie. Like, I don't think that that there is a single scene in this that is completely absent of boringness. Uh, Even the parts that are on the whole good are still pretty boring, uh, which is crazy. Uh, I, I think part of it might be that there's too many characters and that most of them look kind of the same and that they're always like walking through foggy forests with helmets on and you can't really see their faces. And so you don't always like build up an emotional connection with these people that you, you hardly ever see their faces. And then there is the one guy who does seem distinct, which is Merlin, And he's kind of lame in this. I don't like this Merlin. Uh, He starts off the movie as like a very stern kind of imposing figure, like a mystical kind of guy that you don't want to mess with. And then, I don't know, like halfway through this, he just starts doing like weird slapstick routines. He's like, he's slipping on banana peels and stuff in in this forest. It's, It's very strange what they do with this Merlin character. So overall... I can't say this is a great movie. It's not nearly as thrilling as it should be. And it just does not have very much inertia. Uh, but it's also at the same time, very pretty to look at, you know, on a, on a lazy afternoon with some good pixels on your TV. Uh, apparently Zack Snyder calls this his favorite film of all time, which I think is a very weird choice, but okay. You know, guy likes to be weird, I guess. Uh, my favorite sequence in this was probably the part where the dude's looking for the grail and runs into Morgana and her kid. Uh, there's some pretty spooky stuff in that segment. Uh, the that gold armor on that kid I thought was kind of cool looking. Yeah. Anyhow, I you know I don't regret watching this, but I also feel like once was probably enough on this movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it and you're into fantasy, I would recommend it. But you know this is not going to be the movie to to convert you into a you know a sword and sorceriesman. Uh, but yeah, again. There's there's some things of interest here, but what did you guys think of Excalibur? Well, Sean, I don't know if I've ever agreed with you more. Um, I'm going to pretty much 
echo everything you just said because I uh, am pretty much in 100% agreement. I, like you, do not have a ton of experience with the King Arthur story. I mean, I read some stuff about it in school a little bit, and I liked Sword and the Sorcerer as a kid and have seen, you know, various things that either kind of directly parody or were inspired by the legends of King Arthur's court. But but really, have you tried Montague's All Meat Marvel at Roundtable? No, we don't have Roundtable pizzas around here. So Next time. Next time you come yeah. out. So, yeah, I don't have a lot. Don't, of, and I'm, don't take oh. this man to a Roundtable. Roundtable is the absolute worst pizza on earth. I pray to God you don't go to this place. Do you really hold that opinion about Roundtable pizza? Because that's kind of fighting words. That crust is so bad. It's like all flaky and like horrible it's like you love the flake that's what they like say that. about you there they say all oh, the, oh mr bowman he love the flake <laughs> i mean maybe maybe you might say that but they'd be incorrect they might have received incorrect information that pizza's bad it's so bad it's the worst pizza i've ever had by far all i'm saying is that it's better than like the other major chains it's better than domino's and pizza hut and papa john's but I, it, I, I, it's not not holding a candle to real pizza i thoroughly disagree with that as well i would well, the Kevin will be the tiebreaker when he comes out. All right. We got to get Kevin to, f- to figure this out for us. All right. Well, we'll see. But uh, <laughs> in addition to not being a round tablesman, I'm also not a big fantasy man. I mean, I'm not a, I don't like Lord of the Rings. I don't like really any of those sword and sorcery movies, unless there's like a, a culty bent to it, like a death stalker or, you know, some barbarian brothers, you know, something like that. But when it's just straight fantasy, and trying to be pretty serious, uh, like Sean said, it can get pretty boring. That doesn't mean that I don't like this movie. I mean, it it is visually very impressive. It looks good. Like you said, the costuming is great. The locations are great. Um, it, it, it all looks very competent and very well made. But I would be lying if I didn't say I was pretty bored pretty much the entire runtime of this movie. I mean, there were things that visually caught my eye and I was like, Ooh, that looks cool. And Ooh, that's nice. Or, um, and like you, I, I have to agree that the part that my eyes perked up the most was definitely that quest for the grail scene, uh, where he is in that forest with all those, uh, night cadavers and they're all, you know, yeah. all their flesh is and that. I mean, the highlight of the movie is the, that two seconds where that bird plucks yeah. the eyeball out of the dude's <laughs> yeah. head. My wife uh, recoiled in disgust at that part, and she was right to do so. It's pretty, pretty, pretty gnarly. But I mean, obviously, I could just see that as a gif and skip, <laughs> yeah. you know, two hours of boredom by watching this. Um, but yeah, I mean, Helen Mirren is good in this. I mean, it's, they're all great performances. I mean, there, there's nothing really to complain about as far as the actual performances themselves. Uh, like you said, Merlin was a little bit goofy. I liked how every once in a while he'd get, like get this weird like Kermit the Frog voice. Like he'd be very serious, and then all of a sudden he would like switch over to Kermit the Frog voice. I was like, where the hell did that come from? Um, I like that little inbred kid is very creepy. Like you said, riding that horse around in that gold. Uh, armor, although he did look a lot like Dot Matrix from Spaceballs in that <laughs> gold armor, so yeah, that was a bit ridiculous. Um, we've got uh, we're on burn notice this week. We got double duty of Gabriel Byrne as he appears in yeah. this, uh, and in the final feature, we'll be talking about Siesta. Uh, you've also got 
uh, everyone's favorite Leslie Nielsen as Gawain in this. Oh, no, I'm sorry, Liam Nielsen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so some familiar faces. And like I said, great costuming. Uh, the sword looks cool. I like how Excalibur has that you know weird glow to it, that greenish glow. I thought that was cool. And, you know, it, there are some fun battle scenes and, and some a few exciting things here and there. But for the most part, I'd be lying if I had said I wasn't bored. But again, I'm not the target audience for this. Not a fantasy man, not a King Arthur's man. So obviously, you know, I'm not the best judge of this. This would be like me judging, you know, a new pop country album. I wouldn't even know what was good and what was bad. But as the movie goes, for me, it was... Uh, Pretty boring, but you know, it's still fun to look at. You like that cave, though. That cave was fun, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I I pretty much agree with you guys. Um, I've been wanting to see this for a while. Uh, a couple years ago, or whenever it came out, I saw The Green Knight, which is an A twenty four movie. Um, that is about Gawain, or however you pronounce his name, the Liam Neeson character in this. It's like his story. Because like the the King Arthur myth is like so huge, it's like there's the main thing that everybody knows with like the Lady in the Water and the Sword in the Stone and Merlin and all that. But then all the knights have like their own side stories, um, and that one's the Green Knight is kind of his story, and I fucking love that movie. Um, so after oh. seeing it, I was like, oh man, I got to do a deep dive on this King Arthur stuff and really get into this. So I've I've been wanting to see this movie since then. I watched some of the other ones like. You know, like the Disney one you guys mentioned, and uh, a couple other things, but um, uh, but I haven't seen kid, this. a kid in King Arthur's court. I haven't seen that one. I did watch. Uh, wait, is that the one with the kid? I mean, I I think I did watch that one actually. That's the one with uh, the little kid from like um, Rookie of the Year. Rookie of the Year, exactly. Yeah, I did watch that one. That one was all right. <laughs> I kind of yeah. like that movie. Um, <clears throat> and then, of course, I got to watch. Uh, that Martin Lawrence one where he goes back in time to King Arthur's court. Yeah. Um, and then there's like another movie about like a skateboarder from like the nineties. It's like a Fred Olin Ray movie or something where it's oh, just Lord. like a lot of, there's a lot of movies where people get uh, sucked back in time to King Arthur's court. Um, but yeah, so I've been wanting to see this one cause this is the one that people like point to as being like the one that like kind of, it is the most epic in scope and tries to get the most out of the story. And that's like, that's what everybody likes about it. But that's kind of what's wrong with the movie is like they packed, you know, 70 or 80 years worth of story into this two and a half hour movie. And they're going back and forth, like through time, like it's nonlinear in, in spots. And, you know, you've got a guy playing a teenage version of himself, a middle-aged version and an elderly version. And it's like, I had no fucking clue what was happening. And like this movie was supposed to be like three and a half hours long and they cut it down to being two and a half. And it really shows because like it just jumps around and is nonsense. Well, (laughs) and that was the 1981 logic. I guarantee you if this movie came out today, they would have just released a three and a half hour version. Absolutely. Or, I mean, it would be, you know, a three season HBO show or something like that, which probably it should be because there's so much going on here. Actually, I, I heard later on this year we'll be able to watch the Zack Snyder cut of this movie. <laughs> so to be in slow motion and black and white. Yeah. Can't wait. Um, so yeah. So I, yeah, I don't like, I feel like, you know, and I, you know, I just, I would echo all the stuff you guys said. It's like, you know, it's very boring and 
and confusing, but very pretty. And I love, you know, I love the fights. Like I like that they're like grimy and brutal and not like action packed. Um, I think that that's super cool. I love that everything in this movie is grimy. Um, and I love like the kind of like low level fantasy magic to it. It's like most of the time it's pretty kind of rooted in reality, but then, you know, you'll get these flourishes of like otherworldly stuff and it makes it all that much cooler. Um, rather than if they just, you know, threw a bunch of dragons and, uh, zombies and stuff at you. Um, so I like that, but like, yeah, it's, it's just like this big convoluted mess. Um, so I, I feel like if I watch like eight more King Arthur movies and like I, I get a better grasp of what's happening, then I uh, will probably love this. Um, but I, you know, even watching a few of the movies and reading extensive Wikipedias after falling in love with Green Knight, like I, I still don't have enough grasp on the movie to really like, you know, are on the story to know what's happening in this movie. And like, they just do so much. It's like, just, you know, cut it up. Like make the the grail one movie, make the lady in the lake one movie. Like you don't have to pack all this shit in. Like it just too much, too much for one movie. Um, so I don't know. There's a lot I like about it. All the performances are good except for Merlin. Um, and I hate his stupid little hat, but outside of that, all the performances are good. It's cool to see a lot of these actors here kind of getting their starts. Um, I love the look of it, like you guys said. Uh, I love the endless brutality. Um, I love the incest. And the <laughs> <laughs> I love the little inbred kids. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm sure that the, the people who really embrace this are like big King Arthur heads. And I think that you probably would have to be like a big King Arthur head to really, to really appreciate this. Um, like deeply and not just in the way that like you're watching, you know, kind of the precursor to Lord of the Rings and game of Thrones and stuff like that. Um, and liking it just like on this aesthetic level, cause there's nothing really else like this. I mean, a lot of the eighties fantasy stuff was very far fantasy, you know, like dark crystal and labyrinth and never ending story. And, you know, so just to get this kind of middle ground between like historical fiction and fantasy, I think is really cool and pretty unique. So I like this in theory, but not too much in practice, but I will one day. Would you project it over a band though? And if so, what band? Um, I definitely would. The band that I would project it over is probably the band of that guy from the illogical contraption radio show. Um, Chalky, the funk wizard. Okay. Yeah. Kind of a Merlin esque figure, you know, in his own <laughs> <Yeah>. way. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. It actually does fit rather well. All right. Well, very fair. Um, completely agree with you guys. I think all three of us have nearly the identical same feelings about this movie. So, uh, check it out. If, if, if what we said sounds appealing and if not, then don't, I I don't control your life. Uh, but what (laughs) I do control is that we will now be taking a quick break and then we'll come back to talk about Raiders of Atlantis. So stick around. All right. I'll take it. of Atlantis was an island which lay before the Great Flood in the area we now call the Atlantic Ocean. So great an area of land that from her western shores 
those beautiful sailors journeying to the south and the North Americas with ease in their ships with painted sails to the east Africa was her neighbor across a short strait of sea miles the great Egyptian age is but a remnant of the Atlantean culture the antediluvian kings colonized the world all the gods who play in the mythological dramas in all legends from all lands were from fair Atlantis knowing her fate Atlantis sent out ships to all corners of the earth on board were the twelve the poet the physician the farmer the scientist the magician and the other so-called gods of our legends though gods they were and as the elders of our time choose to remain blind let us rejoice and let us sing and dance and ring in the new hail Atlantis
Hell of a welcome committee. Yeah, but what do we have to welcome them with? Sure in hell won't have enough. Just three rounds. Atlantis is our continent. Only you can make it possible for us to return to the world we belong to. Better. Take the money. Back. always been ours. You have no place in it. You cannot defend yourselves. Come on, come on, come on and get some more. Here's one for nothing. week is Raiders of Atlantis from 1983, picked by Justin D. This is an Italian exploitation movie, sometimes known as the Atlantis in Interceptors, uh, but I feel like more commonly Raiders, Raiders of Atlantis. Also, apparently, the Predators of Atlantis. Yeah, but it is does go as Raiders of Atlantis uh, on Severin Films uh, in their current Blu-ray edition. Uh, which is what I watched. I've uh, one of the main reasons I picked this is I borrowed this movie on Blu-ray from friend of the show Justin, probably about a year ago, and still haven't watched. Well, I've watched it now, but hadn't watched it up until this week. So I was like, I need a reason to watch this movie, and it just so happened to be on the junk food dinner list picked by another Justin, Justin D. So it seemed like it was meant to be, uh, and I'm glad I did because this is a wild ride this is uh like a lot of the early 80s italian exploitation movies kind of a post-apocalyptic movie kind of a uh war movie kind of just an action movie uh but it is uh pretty fun and pretty ridiculous throughout so the plot of this movie pretty convoluted but i'll give it my best shot of what the hell actually happens in this uh you've got these two kind of mercenaries like men for hire uh one played by christopher connelly um as a guy named mike ross and christopher connelly he was a tv actor in the uh 60s and 70s he was most known i guess for uh, the soap opera peyton place in his youth uh but he did a lot of tv work in his day but then let's not forget that he's like six billed in benji 
Well, yeah, let's not forget that as well. But in his later days, I guess he got in with the Italians and made a lot of uh, uh, Italian genre movies. He was in Lucio Fulci's Manhattan Baby. Uh, he was in 1990, The Bronx Warriors. He was in this. He was in Jungle Raiders. Um, all kinds of stuff. But uh, so he plays this guy, Christopher Codley, and he's got his uh, partner, uh, Washington, who would prefer to be called Muhammad since, I guess, converting to, uh, you know, Islam. But his partner absolutely refuses to call him that. Uh, he still calls him by his name, uh, Washington, throughout the movie. Something of a Waffle House server this uh, <laughs> this partner of his is. Yeah, although they seem to be good buddies. Uh, and uh, Washington is played by Tony King, who uh, was in a lot of... I mean, he was in Shaft. He had an uncredited role in The Godfather. Uh, he was in Hell Up in Harlem, Bucktown, uh, Cannibal Apocalypse, another... Um, good one and uh, yeah so he's a cool actor and these two guys like I said are a team of mercenaries They at the beginning of the movie they uh, get paid $50,000 to pull a job where they uh, kidnap a rich dude out of his place and deliver him to a mysterious benefactor in a limo and then they take that $50,000 and they're gonna you know take a nice vacation to Trinidad the two of them uh, but when they get on their boat, mean uh, they get on their boat, hit the high seas. But meanwhile, there's a group of scientists trying to decode this message uh, written on an old tablet that they believe could unlock the secrets to the lost city of Atlantis. And as they're doing some sort of sciency stuff, uh, basically, the what we I guess what we find out later is that. The lost city of Atlantis rises from the ocean and causes some sort of kind of apocalyptic shockwave to go through the world that knocks out the use of uh, vehicles temporarily, um, but then it, it does come back. Um, and it, it, uh, strike, uh, the, it begins the appearance of these kind of punk rock marauders who we later find out are the citizens of atlantis and are here to exterminate the human race and reclaim the world for themselves and these are a classic group of italian exploitation punk rock marauders uh, and they are great for everything from the mohawk hairstyles to the crazy clothing uh to the wild vehicles they drive uh, cars, motorcycles, tricked out with spikes and all kinds of stuff. And, of course, a shitload of weapons, including guns, crossbows, chains, bats, you name it. Uh, so they uh, show up on this island and start terrorizing the locals. Uh, meanwhile, our boys, uh, Mike and Washington, get uh, you know their boat... Um, when it stops working, they also discover the submarine that these scientists have been on, and now they're stranded out in the middle of the ocean. So they pick up these scientists, including a uh, a female that is, of course, the foxy love interest of this movie. Um, and yeah, they head on to this like what seems to be kind of deserted island 
where that has been overrun by these punk rock Atlantis marauders. And so they hold up on the island, quickly discover that it's uh, under the rule of these punks, and then it just breaks into all-out war where these guys uh, have to fight these uh, this crazy gang of punks. And so that happens um, in these crazy bombed-out neighborhoods where they eventually find some guns to give them a better shot. Uh, but when the punk rockers kidnap the female scientist and take her to the their Atlantis island, it's up to, again, Mike and Mo- uh, Muhammad, a.k.a. Washington, to travel to that island and save the day. Um, but yeah, so th- this is, again, an uh, Italian low-budget exploitation movie, but I think it is a ton of fun. Uh, this is directed by uh, Ruggiero Diodato, who did Cannibal Holocaust, uh, but it's got it, it's much more fun than that movie. I think uh, there's a lot of fun fight scenes between the punks and the uh, the good guys, we'll say, uh, and some surprising deaths. Some people die that you don't expect, and in some pretty creative ways. Um, somebody gets an arrow through the mouth, which is pretty fun. Uh, some people get decapitated. Um, the punks meet some pretty creative deaths throughout. And, I mean, that's really the meat and potatoes of this movie is, you know, the storyline doesn't really matter. It's 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 mostly just an excuse to set up these big uh, fight scenes between gangs of punks and uh, the good guys. Uh, and, yeah, I, I think it's a lot of fun. Don't look for logic. Don't look for it to make sense. A lot of it's very silly. Like, they acquire these guns at the beginning of, you know, this conflict, and they're like, be careful with your shot. Every shot has to count. Meanwhile, by the end of the movie, they've fired off, you know, unlimited amount of rounds of ammo, seemingly never running out of bullets, despite supposedly only having a short supply. Uh, but I love that the bullets are flying, the heads are flying, limbs are flying. There's a lot of really fun action and violence in this movie and that's what you want from a movie like this i love the punk rock marauders they all look really cool i love the vehicles um yeah it's just a lot of fun Uh, i think this would be a fun movie to see in theaters with an audience especially uh you know a, a rowdy audience cheering on our heroes and their fight against uh these what turn out to be like i said uh punk rockers from atlantis but i thought uh the atlantis interceptors or haters of atlantis whatever title you prefer was a lot of fun but what did you guys think of raiders of atlantis atlantean punk rock fishmen is like the coolest idea for a movie uh on earth it all rules all that shit rules exactly exactly uh, in fact, when I saw the, the plot to this movie, I said, uh? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so in this being Diodato, I was very excited because he's one of my favorite directors. I love, I love this man. So I was hyped to watch this and, um, and yeah, like, you know, it's, it's immediately fun and it's so action packed and they get right into it. I mean, pretty much right into it, you know, like there's not a lot of downtime as you might expect with Deodato. And, um, I don't, it's like just so much though. It's kind of, kind of similar to how I feel about Excalibur is like, 
it it's so much like they start off with the fights and the killing and the maiming and the action-packed stuff and it's like so action-packed and there's so many fights and, you, and you're just like oh my god this is great so many fights uh so many things are blowing up and so many people are getting uh you know shot in the face and everything like this this is great and then it just kind of keeps on doing that same same sort of thing uh the whole time and so uh yes i don't know i like i kind of wish it would have went into some some different directions and wasn't just explosions the whole time although this is kind of a i mean sometimes i do have this um this criticism of italian movies um sometimes they do that i mean like the one we just talked about was that zombie movie we just talked about was the name of nightmare city nightmare city yeah nightmare city does the same thing where it's just um you know we're we're gonna have these atlantean punk rock fishmen or zombies uh, attacking places and then we'll just go from place to place to place and do it over and over again. On the flip side though, I do feel like there are plenty of Italian movies that are, you know, needing for more action. And if, you know, Deodato was a little bit more uh, generous with this footage, you know, we could have spread it across probably six different Italian features and you know, <laughs> spiced them all up with some cool action scenes. Nobody would have even known. That's true. This movie does have enough action for six other movies. Um, so, I, you know, I can't be mad at a movie that's like 90% action. But, and, you know, I'm not advocating for like more, you know, drama between these characters necessarily because it's an exploitation action movie. You know, that's not necessarily what I want. I want the exploitation and I want the action. But I don't know, maybe just like different modes of action, maybe like a more tense scene or maybe, you know. Different kinds of action, I guess. <laughs> like, you were also just, maybe hoping that this would develop into a study of a tortured artist. I was hoping for that. I was hoping that maybe one of the Atlanteans had like maybe conducted a symphony, you know, and was like maybe overbearing or. Yeah, uh, or he was trying to bring the magic of jazz music to Atlantis and nobody would listen to him. Yes, <laughs> something like that. Uh, teaching a plucky young kid how to play the drums. Um. I was hoping for something like that. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I just watched this on like Thursday and I kind of already don't remember it because it's just, it just hits you over the head with all this action. I do agree that it would probably be very fun to see in a theater with a lot of people. Um, that's probably like the ideal place to see it. And I do like this. I don't mean to sound overly negative, but um, I mean, how could you not? Because it's Atlantean punk rock fishmen. But um and some of the beginning kind of reminded me of uh, Who Could Kill a Child, which has been which has grown to become a favorite of mine. Uh, when they're like kind of walking through the empty streets and stuff, I like that stuff. But um, yeah, I don't know. It was just kind of one note, so it kind of left me a little disappointed. Yeah, I had also not seen this movie before. Um, although when it opened up, I, I knew that it was a Deodato movie, um, and I was surprised to see. I guess not too surprised this being an Italian movie, but surprised to see they gave him one of those classic Italian attempts at Americanizing the credits where uh, he doesn't even get name checked. I, I forget the name that they gave for Diodato here, but some, you know, very American sounding name. I did clock the guy that they credited as the composer, you know, rather than give the actual Italian dudes their due. It says music composed and conducted by Oliver Onions, which almost seems like a, like a gag of a name, you know, like Oliver Onions. Like, is this some kind of weird sexual pun or something that I, it doesn't quite compute in my brain, but well, um, that's what they went with. 
Yeah, I mean, when I first saw the main lady in this movie, I, I kind of wanted to see all of her onions. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I, but I do wonder, you know, if you were a guy in Italy who, who worked on one of these movies in the 70s and 80s, are you kind of pissed that your name's not on the print, that some bogus, you know, phony American name is, is getting credit for your work all these years? I, I think I would be kind of pissed. I don't know. Um, but anyhow, yeah, never seen this movie, although I've, I've seen a, a fair share of 70s and 80s Italian action movies. And I feel like there is kind of a delineation where, like, I feel like a lot of the 70s Italian action movies I've seen are kind of, like, seriously badass. Like, they're they're cool. I mean, they're clearly low budget, and maybe some of the performances are not incredible. And, yeah, maybe they're casting, like, older, kind of semi-retired Hollywood actors for the lead roles. But for the most part, they're, like, kind of tough as nails, like, hard-edged, and, like, believably cool kind of movies. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of, like, the police action kind of movies that they made in the 70s. But then by the 80s, I feel like all of the action output is, like, varying degrees of cornball. Like, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Um, and like a lot of Italian movies, this one feels like a blend of popular elements from the big blockbusters of the day. You know, you got, I would argue that, like, probably 48 hours inspired the casting of the two leads in this um because they, they kind of got both of those vibes um the villains in this feel like they were lifted from mad max um the movie locations feel like they were lifted from apocalypse now or or any vietnam war movie that was popular at the time there's even kind of like zombie movie scenarios in this and and there's some indiana jones set decoration you know with these caves and hidden temples and stuff and in the case of this movie, I think all of these elements from big blockbusters of the day blend together pretty dang nicely. You know, I, I like the location that they picked a lot. It's this kind of rotting town being like consumed by the jungle that I thought looked very dreamlike on film. Um, of course, you know, as you mentioned, the highlight is the action, which is plentiful. And it does feature that classic Italian disregard for safety. Um, there's a shot in this where there's a flaming arrow that gets like shot into a wooden beam that is like right next to a dude's face. And the dude seems surprised as hell that somebody shot a flaming arrow at his face. I, I don't think this guy was a good enough actor to look that surprised um, unless he actually was. So um, that was kind of like, Whoa, I hope that guy was okay. Um, but there's a lot of that, you know, there, there's crazy fire stunts in this. There's crazy motorcycle stunts in this guns are blazing nonstop. Um, also crazy is the dialogue. Uh, people say shit in this all the time that makes absolutely no sense. Uh, like at one point, some guy hands another guy a flask of liquor and says, here, have some white vodka. Like he goes out of his way to say that it's white vodka, which is a weird thing, but it's very clearly a dark brown liquid in the flask that he hands over. Um, well, I thought he, I thought he said straight vodka, which would still be weird because it's like well what else would it be like a fucking mixed drink in a flask yeah and and either way there's no brown vodkas that i'm aware of even over in italy so uh strange strange dialogue but this dialogue is just kind of full of all these weird like low stakes kind of mistakes being made you know like nothing that anybody says in this ever like fully makes sense which is fine i think it kind of adds to the charm uh, but like, there's a scene in this where like, um, you know, there's the group of good guys and they get attacked by the bikers and, and they fend off the bikers. And then 
three of the good guys run off, but our fourth good guy just kind of stands around in a corner yelling, don't leave me here. But the guy is like perfectly healthy, right? Like there's no reason for him to just wait there. I think he was mentally traumatized with seeing his wife and his daughter just get murdered. Well, whatever, dude. Get over it. You're in an Atlantean apocalypse. Like, go follow the men with guns. But instead, he's just kind of crying in the corner. And it, to me, like, I feel like this movie is just full of those strange Italian moments where you're like, this is not how reality would ever play out. Um, which, again, is kind of fine. It, I think it does add to the charm. Um, Deodato himself makes a cameo in this. And I feel like you don't even need me to point him out because he's the only person in this movie that looks 99% the same as Lucio Fulci, uh, which was weird, you know, that, that he even looks like a Fulci ripoff himself. Um, but speaking of ripoffs, it's weird that this movie has a title that is clearly intended to cash in on Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then later, Indiana Jones would actually return the favor with its own Crystal Skull movie because... This movie, Raiders of Atlantis, features a character named Crystal Skull. He's the leader of that biker gang with that incredible um, uh, mask that he wears. And he's got that cool car. It's like an Edsel or something. Uh, but I, I like that guy a lot. I like his mask. It kind of reminds me of the um, the mask from Eyes of a Stranger, which I guess came out a few years before this. So maybe they copied that from this. But yeah, I mean, I, I think this is something that Bowman said maybe during our Nightmare City review, but it definitely did strike me this time like how funny it is that these italian movies seemingly skimp on the areas that should not even cost a dime you know like sane dialogue uh that you know they're seemingly willing to invest a lot of money i'm guessing in in these pretty wild action scenes you know helicopters and flamethrowers and stuff like this don't come too cheap uh but they can't afford a single moment to sit down and actually write a script like, like maybe I missed a beat, but it seems to me like they don't even properly set up these bikers being Atlanteans until pretty far into the movie when at that point you're kind of worn out from all this action that that reveal doesn't even really land very well. Uh, and while it doesn't ruin the movie, I, I do feel, you know, kind of like Bowman did, that the action gets pretty repetitive when you don't have a story to invest you in it. So, you know, overall, I did like this. And I think if you like movies like Mad Foxes or... Assault on Precinct 13 or The Exterminator um, or The Bronx Warriors, you will dig this. Uh, it's a lot of fun, but, you know, don't go in expecting an incredible, uh, you know, Oscar caliber film about a tortured artist because uh, it's not that kind of a movie. Uh, but if you're, you know, if you're looking for something to do like a double feature with Nightmare City, uh, I think this would work. Well, right on. Well, I'm glad you guys mostly liked it. Um, but yeah, I think it's a lot of fun. So if you like, uh, what Sean just said, I, I say check it out. But I think that just wraps uh, that wraps it up for the Raiders of Atlantis. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to get into our final film of the evening, and that is Siesta from 1987, picked by Kevin E. So stick around. Have you always wanted to have Kevin Moss locked up in your house? Now you can. Just head on over to junkfooddinner.com for more information about it you can pre-order a stunning piece of artwork based on the likeness of kevin the beautiful kevin moth statue previously available only as a patreon giveaway we're now selling direct to you a listener dazzle potential romantic interests with this one-of-a-kind artwork that reinterprets your favorite jfd host not as a man but as a moth 
Get it now on JunkFoodDinner.com. Actor Julian Sands is one of two hikers missing after going on a hike around Mount Baldy on Friday. San Bernardino Sheriff's Department paused their search over the weekend. The risk of avalanche too great or dangerous conditions on the hiking trails. Spanish songs in Andalusia. The shooting sites in the days of 39. Oh, please leave the vendetta open. Frederico Lockers, dead and gone. Bullet holes in the cemetery walls. The black car, the Johnny of the beer. Spanish bombs on the Costa Rica. I'm dying in on the DC 10 tonight. Spanish bombs, you got the killer infinito. You're the quitter, oh my god, I thought. from the UK lives in North Hollywood. He starred in a number of movies like Warlock. For the past month, crews have launched at least 14 rescue missions on Mount Baldy and surrounding areas. The hillsides ring with the people. Can I hear the echoes? Days of 39. full of bullets. Ragged army. Fixing bayonets to fight the other lies. Spanish bombs rock the province. I'm hearing music from another time. Just coming in from Mount Baldy, where officials have just found actor Julian Sands' car. He's been missing since Friday when he went up to Mount Baldy to hike. San Bernardino Sheriff's Department pausing their search over the weekend because of the treacherous conditions out there. 65-year-old actor from the UK lives in North Hollywood. He's been in countless movies, including Warlock. The search for Sands himself continues. I remember coming here, and I don't remember anything else. Oh my god, I'm falling. Step right up and watch where on a dare. The safety net will be set on fire. I follow you. You're in trouble. I have. You hungry. I feel. But they are of the 
mercy is that you come. You've gone too far this time. This is why you are here. Make love to me. I don't want to see you here. I just came to say goodbye. I'll never see him again. I'm your guardian angel. I'm here to protect you from the forces of evil. You don't have to run away. You didn't do anything wrong. I did something awful. Don't fight it anymore, love. Go where you're being taken. That sounds like sex to me. <laughs> We're all spoiled for choice, aren't we, darling? What else is there? Ambition and a half hour of primetime TV. What has she done? She's not exactly sure. Siesta. The time of day when mystery and eroticism become one. Welcome back to Chung Fudge. Let's see the final Patreon movie ever. Probably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is uh, Siesta, a 1987 movie directed by Mary Lambert. You guys may know Mary Lambert as the director of Pet Cemetery, Halloween Town Part 2, uh, Mega Python versus Gatoroid, and Urban Legends, Bloody Mary, uh, and some other stuff probably. Uh, and Double Switch, the hit video game starring Corey Haim. Oh, hell uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, they're burying the lead here on Letterboxd. And some episodes of The Red Shoes Diary. Okay, I didn't know. They don't have those listed on Letterboxd, I don't think. No. Or they exactly. Yeah. yeah. My petition went unheard. Mm-hmm. That's why we're migrating over to Serialized, the much better website. Of course. where I will, I'm, I'm going to put not only movies on there, but I'm going to put pro wrestling events on there, and there's nothing anybody can tell me that that's wrong. Hell yeah. Uh, this movie, of course, is a movie, uh, not a television show or a pro wrestling event. Uh, this um, in this, Ellen Barkin stars um, as Claire, a stunt woman. You guys know Ellen Barkin. She was in Fear and Loathing and Ocean's 13 and a bunch of other stuff. Um, she's a stunt woman who has awakened in the middle of a field in what she learns to be Spain. She's covered in blood, but uh, not her blood, as she points out, while cleaning it off in a lake, completely nude. And when you say stunt woman, we're not talking like a Zoe Bell, right? This is more like an evil Knievel. Yeah, she's an evil Knievel. Uh, we learn that her her like boyfriend slash promoter Martin Sheen wants her um, to jump, I think, out of an airplane into a net that's being stretched over a volcano. I think that's his plan. Yeah, jump out of yeah. an airplane with no parachute. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, and the idea is you land on the net before the volcano burns it, and then you'll be fine. Yeah, that's that's the idea. That's what they're going for here, I guess. Uh, Martin Sheen may just be evil. We don't know. Uh, he doesn't stick around long enough to know. Uh, but, I mean, to that end, throughout the film, we do get these either flash forwards or flashbacks or... Uh, just dramatic kind of interludes of Ellen Barkin jumping out of an airplane 
So perhaps she has made the jump, or perhaps she will make the jump, or perhaps she's just anxious about the jump. We're not too sure what these mean. Um, and while she's in Spain, she decides to go talk to her ex-boyfriend, um, Gabriel Byrne, who is now with uh, Isabella Rossellini, who you guys probably know because she knows David Lynch. She's met him. I like David Lynch. And burn notice, <laughs> second burn of the evening. Second burn of the evening. We've got second degree burns. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're now together. Ellen Barkin has strong feelings about this um, and strong feelings about him. And uh, so she meets up with them and they have lunch and it's very awkward. She then goes out about town, meets out with uh, my man, Julian Sands. The reason I picked this movie, uh, when Kevin, the reason e put, for living, my reason for living. Yes. When Kevin E put this on the list, I said, Oh my God, this movie may or may not have Julian Sands in it. I'm going to find out. And lo and behold, it did. So I had to pick it. Um, and he plays a kind of eccentric, wealthy art guy, uh, who may or may not also be a literal angel. Uh, spoiler alert, he probably is, most likely, an actual oh. literal angel. Um, and he's great in this. I love him. I love him wearing that cool suit. He's got like a, a like five o'clock shadow that looks really cool because he's got like Baba that. Boom. <laughs> exactly. Um, he's over the top in the way that, that I love to see Julian Sands be over the top. He's really, really great in this. And it's been a long time since we've talked about Julian Sands actually on the show. So I'm, I'm glad to have an excuse to have him back. Um, and but it's, I mean, did it really have to come to this before you picked another Julian Sands movie? Well, I think we've done most of the culty ones. He's in that like Phantom of the Opera, I guess that we could have done. And he's like, I mean, he's not in the third Warlock movie. So, I mean, we, we may have done all the Julian Sands that there is fit to do on a cult movie podcast. I'm just saying you could have celebrated the man during his lifetime. Oh, I see what you're saying. I thought you were making a judgment call on the quality of the, the film. That will come later. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it is sad under these circumstances. But I, you know, I thought with, uh, you know, the normal sort of format of the show kind of coming to an end, we need, we either needed to get Julian Sands or Corey Feldman in here one last time. And I, I went with my man Sands. Um, a lot of other people pop up in this. Uh, Grace Jones shows up for a bit. Jodie Foster is in this. Um, lots of people you've seen before. Uh, this is like kind of, it, this is like all the stuff that people always like, like when people describe late 80, eighties, early nineties, like indie movies, like they're, they're very much talking about this kind of a thing. Um, it's sort of like very, very artsy, very abstract, uh, very loose, um, very kind of stagey a bit. Uh, this could just be a play um, outside of kind of like the more erotic and or surreal elements that pop up from time to time. Um, it's very, very abstract. It's the kind of movie that demands that you form your own idea of what it means and what happens. Although I'm not certain that Mary Lambert really even cares uh, what any of this stuff means or what any of these things that happen, happen. Um I mean, I guess I, to talk about this, we kind of have to spoil it a, a little bit. So if you're interested in this movie, skip ahead a bit. 
But um, like she's convinced throughout the movie, Ellen Barkin is, that she either um, kills Gabriel Byrne or his girlfriend, Isabella Rossellini. Uh, she's worried about this the whole time. She thinks this is going to come to be. And uh, it gets switched around on us. And actually, she's the one who's stabbed. And so she, it's revealed oh. that she may or may not have been dead the whole time. Um, or possibly she, it's possible that she was killed during this murder. Or it's possible she was killed in the, the aforementioned stunt that went wrong. And she's just dreaming all of this stuff that happens here in Spain. Kind of re, like reliving her what she should have done or I don't know, her anxieties and fears, maybe I guess is more accurate, like sort of stuff. At least that's the way I saw. It. I thought that maybe she died. Like all the times we see her jumping out of that airplane and then she wakes up, you know, in a field. Like I figured she just fell out of an airplane at some point and landed in a field and died. Like that's my interpretation of this. But I guess there's about a million ways you could probably look at this movie because it is so loose and abstract. Uh, or you can just probably just pay attention to the fact that it's a soft core porno movie. Like you don't even really need to think about it too much. I guess you could just w- look at boobies and stuff if you want. Uh, there's a lot of sex scenes in this. Uh, a lot of a lot of booby grabbing, shirt ripping, booby grabbing, whatnot. Baba voom. Exactly. Well, not enough consensual sex for my likings. Some of it's kind of gross. That's true. Uh, that is true. Um, but that's, that's the, the Skinamax way. That's the way <laughs> erotic, <laughs> erotic film worked in the years between 1986 and 1992, I think. Um, so, so yeah, so I don't know. I kind of like this just because, I mean, I, everybody in it's really good. Ellen Barkin's really good. The cast is good. Julian Sands is great. Like him, this character is like, just a, like a really perfect fit for him. Like he kind of gets to be, be very extra as the kids say, the way that Julian Sands is good at being. Um, is that really something that kids say? That's what the kids say. Yeah. So let's oh, leave yeah. that one for the kids. Well, if I, I, I think you're being, <laughs> <laughs> I think you're being uh, a little bit extra here, Sean. But In terms think- of slang words, <laughs> I would say extra is a little bit mid. Well, that's true. But if you're not saying extra at this point, your street's behind. Um, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> um, I think that's fake slang. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so this, yeah, I don't know. This is a movie, certainly. Uh, I kind of enjoy it, but not not really. I don't know. Movies like this really usually piss me off, like just like the kind of vague kind of, you know, do it yourself kind of movie. And for whatever reason, this one didn't piss me off, probably because of the cast. Um, certainly not because Mary Lambert, because she sucks. All her movies are bad, even Pet Cemetery. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I got mixed feelings about this. What do you guys think about it? Well, note on Julian Sands, I guess Wikipedia is still holding out hope because his article does start with the sentence, Julian Sands is an English actor. So that they still mm-hmm. have him in the present tense. Good for you guys for being optimistic that, you know, he'll, he'll thaw out this spring and make his way back down to Hollywood. And <laughs> we're all rooting for the guy to do that. Um, I had never heard of this movie before you picked it and coming into it, you know, the only thing that I knew was that it was directed by Mary Lambert and that it starred Alan Barkin. Um, but I did not expect it to start off with a scene where she's fully nude in the desert for a long bit of time there. And I, 
I guess that's the kind of thing that I rarely expect from an Alan Barkin film, but sure enough, this delivered that. Um, and I, you know, I guess I always think of Mary Lambert as just kind of being the pet cemetery director. So I was a little bit surprised to see, uh, this week, you know, looking at IMDb that she did a, actually a, a fair amount of soft core, uh, mat- you know, soft core material, um, around this time period. And it's, it's kind of funny to me that her career is just sort of like alternating between Stephen King and Zalman King, uh, the Red Shoes Diaries guy who she would work with not only on this film because he produced it, but also, like I said before, on the actual diaries themselves. Um, side note on Mary Lambert, uh, she's been married to a guy named Jerome Gary since 1991, who is, if the name doesn't ring a bell, best known for directing 1988's um, action film Tracks, starring Shadow Stevens, if you guys remember Tracks. Yeah, hell yeah. I believe, I yeah, I believe we reviewed. Yeah. Um, That's cool. I didn't know those two were married. Um, But yeah, as for this movie, man, it was kind of hard for me to get like a read on the tone of this movie. Like, was it supposed to be a little bit preposterous? Because some parts of this certainly seem a little bit preposterous. You know, like there's this one part in this where uh, little old Ellen Barkin wrestles like a 300 pound taxi driver to the ground yeah, I didn't find that very believable. Um, also, Jodie Foster's British accent is certainly very preposterous in this movie. <laughs> I don't think anybody believed that. Um, that said, I am very glad that I didn't pay full attention during the opening credits because I was pleasantly surprised when Jodie Foster showed up. Uh, I was like, whoa, she's in this movie. You know, an, an actress that I like and of the caliber that I wouldn't have expected to be in this. Although I guess this is kind of right before the accused and, and maybe she was not uh, as well regarded in 87 as she is now. But um, I will say, you know, whether or not this movie is trying to be like surreal, I do object with the fact that they traveled all the way to Spain just to cast Gabriel fucking Byrne as the single Spaniard in this cast of characters. Like couldn't find a, a, an actual Spanish dude over there. Like you, you got to get this clearly British man to do this character with like a real crumb bum Spanish accent. I was not into that. Uh, But in terms of nice surprises, we we got a soundtrack here from Marcus Miller and Miles Davis. And and not that it's like top shelf miles or anything, but I think you can still hear like some of his signature trumpet tone. And overall, it's kind of like a cool version of like a nineties sleazy soft core soundtrack, you know? Um, And that's probably my favorite part of the, the movie is this, this score that is, it's not like it's a huge part of the film or anything, but it, you know, it was nice. Um, also, you know, the appearance of Grace Jones, like you mentioned, was another fun surprise, but I would be lying if I said that I love this. Um, I wish that there was a more engaging story here because I actually do kind of like the overall vibe of this. You know, it's got that kind of low energy, late night weirdness, full of weird people, and, you know, it's, it's got that kind of knocking on doors all around town sort of film noir uh, structure to it that I like. But never for one moment during this entire movie was I really ever fully invested in what would happen next to these weird people behind the doors that were being knocked on. I was just kind of ready for it to be over. So overall, you know, it's the kind of movie that I'm impressed got made. Something this weird, you know, this low budget, yet with this many famous people, I think that's a rare combination, and I like that it exists. And had I seen this on Cinemax in, like, 1990 or whatever as, like, a kid, 
I probably would have loved this because it has a lot of boobs. But <laughs> I mean, as an adult, I'm like, I, I got other ways to see boobs, whether or not they are Alan Barkins. Yeah, like you guys, I had never heard of this movie before, which is kind of surprising. Like you said, based on the the cast and, and crew. Um, but yeah, it's apparently never been released on DVD here in the United States. It has had a couple of foreign DVD releases, but never been released on DVD here in the States or Blu-ray. Only had the VHS release. Uh, so, And I don't know if it really had a big cable presence, so I'm not surprised that it kind of slipped under my radar. Uh, but yeah, when this first came on and I saw the cast, I mean, I'm like Ellen Barkin, Gabriel Byrne, Julia Sands, Isabella Rossellini, Martin Sheen, Grace Jones, Jodie Foster. Holy shit. Music by Miles Davis. I'm like, what the fuck? How have I never heard of this movie? This sounds incredible. And then it started and you can definitely tell they were maybe even trying to, to take like kind of a Lynchian route with this. In fact, I even read that when this movie was released, they were trying to tout it as this year's Blue Velvet, which, yeah, Yeah, no. No. <laughs> uh, but I guess they were trying to kind of go for that Lynchian vibe. And, yeah, I mean, there's stuff to like here. Like you guys said, I mean, it seems like it, it might have been a decent enough idea. And I like Ellen Barkin as like this kind of daredevil stunt person but that doesn't really ever i don't know kind of pay off too much and yeah i mean the storyline is interesting and ellen barkin i i think is kind of immediately um kind of engaging not only due to the fact that she starts off the movie like you said uh basically nude and she's i mean i i've never been like huge into ellen barkin but like Man, I can understand what the appeal was back in the 80s because she was fucking pretty smoking hot. And, uh, yeah, so her charm kind of was the the thing that kind of made this movie palatable because everything else was, yeah, like you guys said, pretty blah. Um, you know, after a while, the story just kept meandering. I didn't really give a fuck if she got back together with her stupid trapeze Gabriel Byrne boyfriend or not. Um, and then the rest of the time she's just driving around getting sexually harassed by cab drivers and, um, meeting up with Jodie Foster being obnoxious and annoying and Julian Sands. I, I'm sorry, Parker just doesn't do it anything for me. So he wasn't any sort of respite for me in this, uh, in this film, but you know, just waiting to see Ellen Barkin nude again was enough to kind of at least keep me in involved uh, through the course of the movie. So that was all right. But yeah, other than that, it, yeah, there really wasn't a ton here for me to latch on to, um, you know, some interesting set pieces. And like you said, you know, it's set in Spain. So there's some interesting stuff happening and like, you know, there's that scene where she jumps out of a window and lands on top of that bus traveling through the streets of spain and then just kind of lays on it while it takes her away you know that was kind of interesting <laughs> um and some of it was you know it shot well and looked cool um even though it was ripped from vhs i mean it's still you could get the idea but yeah i don't know i it was okay but like you guys said just kind of 
boring. The story was kind of disjointed. And, you know, when they got to the quote unquote, you know, kind of surprise reveal at the end where it's like, you know, kind of a sixth sense sort of thing where she's, has she been dead this whole time? It's like, eh, a little too late for me to get interested in this. So kind of a mess, but like I said, Ellen Warkin's charms uh, went a long way for me. And by charms, I mean nudity. <laughs> Perfectly reasonable. Um, well, yeah, I guess that wraps it up for this uh, this nudity. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, nudity will happen. So stick around. And I like Eddie Murphy's Coming up next, a strange erotic film about a woman daredevil who wants to jump from an airplane into a flaming nest above a volcano. The film is called Siesta. So, you know, I pulled some strings and had NASA do some trial readouts on wind direction and velocity. Guess what? They checked out A-OK -okay with all our calculations. called Siesta, starring Ellen Barkin from The Big Easy. She plays a very sensual woman who is a daredevil parachutist. And I like Eddie Murphy's About to attempt, with the help of her husband manager, Martin Sheen, a leap into a flaming net above an artificial volcano in Death Valley. But before the leap, she gets a letter from an old flame in Spain, and that drives her back to Spain into a crazy world of sex and violence and decadence. First, she meets her old lover's wife, played by Isabella Rossellini. Gabriel Byrne plays the lover. And I like Eddie Murphy's while in Spain, Barker hangs out with some rich, bored people to whom she pours out her philosophy of life. A desperate fear of, but an attraction to, Even a very tiny one. I'm through. The end. The eternal black. I wouldn't be 
be so sure of that. Oh, it's the only thing I am sure of. It's what suits me when I jump. I know that if I make a mistake, I won't have to account for it later. Now, she's got an interesting mind worth probing, but the film doesn't do that. Too often it gives us pointless interchanges with trivial characters, including a rich, spoiled brat played by Jodie Foster. Here I am, in a bathroom, utterly pissed, alone on my birthday. Sounds like a crazy movie, you say? Well, I agree, reluctantly, because if director Mary Lambert had stripped away some of the sideline characters and given us more of the love triangle with Barkin and her old lover and maybe Rossellini, the film would have really worked. Now it's told in flashback, with Barkin waking up in blood and bruises all over her body and wondering what happened to her. And that mystery is worth following, I'm afraid, only part of the way in Siesta. I went through the same sort of change of heart while I was watching the movie. I have seen so many assembly line, no-brainer movies yeah. in recent months that as this movie began, I thought, hey, yes. this one is a lie. I did this too. one is trying to do something new and different. This one is not going to just repeat the same old cliches. Okay. Then, by the end of the movie, I was thinking, uh, where did it get away? How did it elude us? Because the movie is a real letdown. It, mm -hmm. it starts out with wonderful ideas, yes. and it doesn't pay off. It doesn't really well, think the it through. The decision to take her into this world where uh, you've got a whole bunch of rich people mm -hmm. is really where the film goes completely off track. They've created a very interesting character. Now, Embark and I would stay on her, maybe go back to Martin Sheen and her husband, restrict it, tighten it up, and throw away the Playboy characters. They're not interesting. Yeah. And without giving it away, I would also say that I thought the ending was sort of a cheat. You bet. And and two thumbs up for the strange and enchanting and finally two thumbs down for siesta which contained a lot of interesting scenes that added up unfortunately to not very much tell your friends about junk food dinner what for what for i hate them so much what for nobody likes this crap they're just pretending they're just, oh, i like david lunch oh, well, look at me i got the most out of print records you ever saw in your life Tell your friends. What for? What for? What for? Tell your friends about junk food dinner. Oh, that David Lynch. No one likes him. Oh, no. What for? Oh, no. I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode of the Junk Food Dinner Podcast. And we are counting down to the end of JFD as you know it, although not really, kind of, just a little bit, just a slight change up. Uh, as we mentioned many times before, next week will be our final Kevin era regular show, you know, the weekly show with Kevin, although he will be back on a monthly basis after that. And to celebrate, uh, we're going out with Kevin in style with our 13th anniversary show. It will be. Uh, just a bonanza of good times. As we mentioned, we'll be reviewing uh, three classics, but we'll also be discussing our favorite classics and 
least favorite, not so classics from the past year of Junk Food Dinner, but those three movies for the show next week will be The Rocky Horror Picture Show from 1978, Troll 2 from 1990, and Tingente, Forbidden Subjects from 1989. Uh, should be a fun show. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to watching all three of those. Uh, in between now and then, you can get in touch with your friends at Junk Food Dinner in all of the usual ways. You can send us an email at jftpodcast at gmail.com. Even better, send us a voicemail at uh, 347-746-JUNK. That's 347-746-5865. I believe, I think, I, I, don't, I don't know if I, if I clocked that properly from when Bowman said it earlier in the show, but I, I think that's about right. Um, you could also go to patreon.com slash junkfoodinner and adjust your levels or sign up for a level if, you know, if you feel like now, while we're winding down the Patreon pick segment of our Patreon is the time to get in. If that was the one thing preventing you from signing up, well, that's no longer an issue. Sign up and we'll have a little bit less over than, than we used to, but it, it, you know, it should still be some cool stuff. So do check us out on patreon.com slash junkfoodinner. And check out our website, junkfoodinner.com. Check out our social medias, all that stuff. You know how to do that. But until next time, uh, this is your friend, Sen Byro, for your other two friends, Kelvin Moose and Perky Beantown Bowman, saying keep washing them dishes. Eloise's joke, and after all this time, it should be aged to perfection. Here's Don telling his favorite joke to his best friend. Wait till you hear this. This guy is drowning, you know, he's having a very hard time in the ocean. So a boat comes by and says, Are you all right? The guy says, It's okay. I have faith in God. Move on. <laughs> the boat goes away. Just then a helicopter comes by and they all come down and they look at him and they say, Are you all right? Do you need any help? The man looks at them and says, It's okay. I have faith in God. Move on. The man drowns. He goes to heaven. He goes up to heaven and he looks at God and says, I prayed and prayed. What happened? God says, I sent a boat and a helicopter. <laughs> I sent a boat and a... Hello? Hello? Operator! Operator! I've been disconnected. Operator!